Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm recording this from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people. First Nations people have been custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonization is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in, taking land, sea, children and lives. I want to acknowledge that despite ongoing colonization, 60,000 years of wisdom continues. And so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligations to take a daily personal responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. In August 2021, the cultural review of the adult custodial correction system commenced. It looked at the culture, experiences, systems and processes within Victoria's prisons and correctional centres. It looked at how these processes do or don't serve people in custody and corrections officers working in these settings. It's due to report in the middle of the year. What disappointed me, however, during the announcement was that on the expert panel, which I would add has great expertise and importantly representation from uh, Jill Gallagher, who was a prominent and eminently qualified uh, First Nations leader and advocate. What worried me is that there was not a person with lived experience of corrections. There was representation of people who work in the criminal justice system or corrections, but not somebody with lived experience of having been in corrections. That imbalance does a disservice to this process and to the people currently or formerly in the system. It should have been remedied. It can be remedied. People with lived experience have been consulted in this process. But as you will hear from Sarah and Jenny, and I should note that those are pseudonyms, people with lived experience have ample capacity to critically evaluate evidence, and I might add, ask different types of questions. By failing to have someone with lived experience on the panel, it reinforces the othering that these communities experience and tells the community that they shouldn't be heard as experts. I want to thank Natasha Dewurst from Flat Out for supporting this process by connecting me to Jenny and Sarah, who were both paid for their time and expertise on this podcast. I also want to thank Monique Hurley from the Human Rights Law Centre, who's interviewed. Most of all, I want to thank Jenny and Sarah, whose words were profound and still ring in my head. I won't reflect on the themes of this conversation. I'll just say that it's our collective and shared responsibility to listen and act on what these three human rights advocates have to say. Um, well, as you'd know in this podcast, um, the, the first question that we ask um, all guests is, why does regulation matter to you and to your community? Uh, Sarah, I was wondering if you could get us started on that. Um, well, I think regulation 
particularly matters like in the custodial setting, um, it's there to hold, hold systems and organisations accountable. Um, and, you know, in the custodial session um, areas, there's a lot of grey area in that. Um, you know, there's deaths in custody. You know, who's held accountable for that? Like, surely there's a duty of care from custodial staff to protect women or men, and that's just not being met. Um, but should be like an independent committee that comes in and reviews all those all those um, incidences. Yeah. But there's not. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like um, there's something in there about um, when you're putting people in closed spaces, you have to have some rules um, or some, I guess, monitoring of those rules to check that, people are kind of doing the right thing and you, you talk a bit about an independent committee there um yeah that's uh, you know I, I think that's something that's been called for by by a lot of people so i think that resonates with a lot of people um jenny i was wondering so why does regulation matter to you and, and your community um well as sarah said you know there people need to be held accountable there needs to be committees and things like that that come in and review review what's actually happening in these institutions. You know, in the time that I was in there, I have had countless deaths that I've heard of that have happened in, in custody. Um, and who knows who's responsible for that? Is it the prison officers? Is it not? Um, but it's, it's something that needs to happen because at the end of the day, we're meant to be rehabilitated in prison and nine times out of ten that's just not happening so who who's going to help regulate that like how mm. how is that meant to happen you know yeah yeah absolutely and um yeah that's a great point you know you're meant to be rehabilitated in that process but if you're hearing that it's a life or death kind of threat to you um it's pretty hard to imagine how you can be rehabilitated in that environment so, so Monique, you, uh, you work for the Human Rights Law Centre and you do a lot of work in this space. Uh, how do you approach this question of, I guess, why does regulation matter and why does it matter to, I guess, the communities that you serve? Because prisons are closed environments, regulation is really important. Um, as Sarah and Jenny were just um, talking about, um, human rights abuses happen quite frequently behind bars and they too often go unchecked. Cruel and degrading practices like solitary confinement and routine strip searching are rife. Um, key decision-making processes within prison, including um, in disciplinary proceedings, are opaque and often riddled with unfairness. Plus, um, there's insufficient monitoring of prison conditions, making it almost impossible for people to shine a light on the human rights abuses that they experience. Um, so regulation is really important because the Victorian government's human rights responsibilities don't end at prison gates, but I think it's also important to note that regulation only gets us so far, and as Jenny was discussing, I think that we need to really think about um, what purpose prisons serve, and I think there's a question for me about whether you can ever really make prisons completely safe or human rights compliant environments. 
and I don't think that you can because prisons are inherently really brutal and unforgiving places that compound and exacerbate disadvantage. And so I think it's really important for any conversation about regulating prisons to also talk about um, bigger questions about why we're pipelining so many people into prisons and what the Victorian government can be doing to reduce the number of people that are being funneled into that environment. Yeah, absolutely. And we need to be able to hold both of those um, both of those things at the same time. Um, we, we can't resolve these kind of gaping wounds with, um, you know, with, with, with band-aids um, about regulating. Um, both things need to go in tandem. So in our community, we often think about, uh, we often think that the kind of best way to regulate crime, and you've kind of touched on it a bit there, um, Monique, is to, to do it through the criminal law. So we often talk about, you know, hard on crime um, approach. We, we heard about that. That came into prominence um, prior to the you know, 2018 election here in Victoria. How do you approach, um, and you've signaled some of that, but I'll start with you, Monique. Um, how do you approach that question of uh, what's the best way to regulate or, or maybe respond um, to, to what we call crime um, in Australia or Victoria? Yes, yeah, so you raised some really good points there about um, kind of what we consider crime. And I think we've seen over the last few years that um, successive Victorian governments have been pushing more and more people into prisons during a time when crime mat crime rates have remained relatively flat and there's a real political purpose behind that um, and there's been a, um, a series of um, discriminatory and dangerous laws that have been enacted for this purpose of appearing tough on crime um, and there's some uh, in particular there's been really knee-jerk amendments made to the bail laws in response to one incident of really extreme violence perpetrated by one person. And those reforms have resulted in a system where more and more women in particular are being detained in prisons on remand, so unsentenced for the offending that they were arrested for. And the most recent data available from Corrections Victoria, which is for February this year, 2020, shows that, and I just can't even believe this, a staggering 57.5% of women in Victorian prisons for that month were um, unsentenced. Wow. So that's almost 60% of the women in prison aren't, um, haven't had their day in court and haven't been found guilty for what they were arrested for, which is... Um, Unbelievable. Yeah, a really dire situation. And that's not only harming... The women that are that are being forced into that um, situation, it's also really ineffective because um, the evidence and an increasing body of evidence is showing that prisons don't support this idea of community safety, that they're actually undermining it um, because it's a really brutal and um, harmful environment for people to be in and criminalising people and subjecting them to the things that we're talking about today um, doesn't, doesn't help people come out and start better lives. It really just compounds inequality um, and often trauma and 
yes, so it doesn't make any sense for us to continue down this path um, and there needs to be a real reimagination of what what we're trying to do with the prison system. Yeah, and I think that the when I hear you say that, there, there isn't many, um, I guess, quote-unquote logical or rational reasons for doing what we do. And I, I do feel like part of the solution is for those of us in the community who assume that's a good approach to reflect on why we think that's a good approach because it's obviously serving some psychological need that the community has and maybe that's not a defensible one. Well, I would say it's not, and I imagine you would say that too. Um, Sarah and Jenny, I wanted to jump to you. So did you have thoughts on this, I guess, what we call hard on crime approach? Um, you've both experienced, um, cor- you know, correction settings. Um, does that inform, you know, your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, well, hard on crime doesn't work. You know, it it actually does not work because in the time I was in there, I have seen so many women come in and out, you know, it's like an evolving door for them. So how is that benefiting anyone? You know, um, it's, it's not, it's as simple as that. It's not. And at some point we need to stop and, and ask ourselves, okay, why are these people offending? Why are they committing these crimes? What is actually going on for them? Is it mental illness? Is it drug addiction? Is it poor upbringing, you know, we have to get to the bottom of that first. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just throw people and especially young people into prison and expect them that it's just going to fix them because it's not, because there's not things in there that are going to help them rehabilitate themselves. And the, the small amount of things that are in there to help, the waiting lists are over 12 months long, you know. So, so how is this benefiting anyone in our community? You're trying to be hard on crime, but how? Like, what is it? What is it doing? Nothing. Yeah, no, powerful, powerful, Jenny. Um, I um, I don't have anything to add. That was just really powerful, Sarah. Did you have thoughts on that? That was a tough act to follow, but yeah, I, th- I think. Um, yeah, I think Jenny really she summed it up there. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Well, so. We, uh, uh, it's good that we frame the conversation in this way in terms of so we can sometimes when we talk about these um, issues only focus on regulating or making something that's bad a little bit less bad. But I think what we've said is let's actually think about a paradigm shift. Um, so we've, we've kind of planted that flag and I think that's a good way to frame this conversation. Um, but it means we can also then talk about, well, what is it like when people are in these environments? And so, you know, currently our prison population, and you spoke to this, Monique, is growing despite um, static or, you know, not uh, the same growth in in crime. But a lot of people, you know, who are listening to this podcast and in the community don't know what prison environment is like. Um Sarah and Jenny, as people who've gone through the system, you know, as uh, in in as much as much or as few words as as you'd like to, how would you describe it? Yeah, yeah and I think at like DPFC too, just to have your basic needs met, like medical treatment, you know, that's used as a power tool by officers. Incredible. Incredible. 
those sorts of things happen all the time. Yeah. You know, girls, it's a common thing that girls get abscesses on the, in their mouth, from their teeth, in there. It happens all the time. And for them to even be seen, they have to go to nurse triage or parade or something like that. And they have to sit there for hours whilst they have this big thing on their face and they're in pain. They can't get Panadol and Nurofen because it's not medication time or they're not written up for it. And just to get, if you have a headache, to get some kind of pain relief, you have to wait till certain times to get that. And if you get it through the middle of the night, you can't just buzz up to get yourself some pain relief. And then even if you do it, like there's certain times you can do it, but if you're not written up for it, you can't have it. So you just have to suffer. Like that's just how it is. And it, yeah, it's really difficult. You can't even get into the medical centre at DPFC without buzzing and them saying, do you have an appointment? Well, no, I don't have an appointment, but it's an emergency. We can't let you in. They don't believe you. Everything is that you have to try and prove yourself that this is actually happening. This is actually wrong with you because they put everyone in the same category. Yeah, basically you're guilty till proven innocent in there. Mm-hmm. Incredible in the in the worst way um, possible. And, and I, I want to acknowledge um, that, you know, it, it's these are really difficult experiences that you're both talking about, Jenny and, and Sarah, and that, I certainly don't take those for granted and, and I'm, I'm sure the, the listeners don't either. Um, but we also don't hear them enough um, and we don't hear people like yourself speaking as experts um, in this space. And so I want to thank you for, for talking us through this. Monique, you're, you're I guess, working again you know, for the Human Rights Law Centre um, uh, in a lot of these spaces. How does what Sarah and Jenny have said um, you know, map on to, resonate, extend, relate to, to what you're doing? Oh, I just think it goes back to what we've, what we've kind of been speaking about already in terms of criminalising women um, instead of supporting them is really serving to entrench them in these systems rather than working to um, serve any kind of... Um, rehabilitative function it's um really I think it really we really need to question why this is the way that things are operating and that pipelining women into a system that's fundamentally ill-equipped to address the underlying of causes of their offending is just doing nothing to remedy anything And I think that that's really going to this point around prisons being a microcosm for the way in which society fails women generally, but it's an environment where that's really exacerbated and compounded and invisible largely to the outside world. Um, And it's a place where women are being punished often because they are not a risk, but because government failures to provide appropriate supports um, and diversion mechanisms put women at risk of family violence, homelessness, economic disadvantage, mental illness and other um, health issues. And so we've just got a system where there is a really severe power imbalance between people in prison and prison staff, which places people at risk of really um, harmful conduct Um, and yeah there's been a lot of evidence in recent years that really confirms what 
Sarah and Jenny have said in terms of that environment placing people at risk of um, serious and systemic wrongdoing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I want to thank you for being here too, Monique. And I'm, I'm sure in your work you've, you've, you've come across a lot of these um, these themes that, that Jenny and, and Sarah are talking through. Just a, a reflection on what you were saying there. I, I work in mental health predominantly, but I recently supported um, some people who, who were in um, forensic care, so the forensic um, um, mental health system, to, to make some submissions to a law reform process. And um, they spoke a lot about how um, solitary confinement's used in, in prison settings as opposed to uh, mental health settings. So in mental health, we'd, we'd call it seclusion. Um, um, in prison, it's called in prison. I, the legislation says separation, which sounds very fucking Orwellian to me. Like you know, like don't call it what it is. But um, uh, just my reflection on that is how, like, just the god powers that a corrections officer has in that setting, and there's no oversight at all um, about those decisions and how that. That's just one example but how that filters down to um, what Jenny and Sarah are talking about in you're having a conversation about your medical care or um, you're upset about this, that or the other, that's not separate from the fact that someone could just throw you in, in solitary confinement um, quite quickly. And I imagine that that colours all of the interactions that you have. Again, question without notice, Sarah and Jenny, but is that, do you, do you find you could be talking about anything, but that kind of power seeps through all of it, all that power imbalance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like um, with the staff there, like it's, you know, it's more of like their personal opinion rather than following guidelines or regulations it's just how they feel about the situation yeah so yeah and I mean that that makes you very um I don't like the term vulnerable but it it makes you it puts you in a very vulnerable position um in those social interactions again Jenny I don't know if you had anything to add on that um yeah um yeah it's it's very much like that throughout the whole system. If it comes to your parole, if it comes to your sentencing, if it comes to case management, um, it, it property, anything, it's all controlled by them. And and as Sarah said, it's their sometimes their personal opinions overshine what the procedures and and what's actually meant to be happening. And that's just how it is in there, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, you're just expected to shut up and and do as you're told, and don't think for yourself. Don't even try and have a personality. Don't even try and challenge the system because you'll get shut down, and um, you you are scared to speak up because the repercussions do come. Yeah, yeah. If you know, if you the complaints process is, um, you know, you can go to you can they tell you to call the ombudsman, but you call the ombudsman and the ombudsman asks for your CRN, your name. And I know firsthand an officer actually told me that the ombudsman reports back to the prison and tells them exactly what the issue is, who said it, who it was, 
it's directed at. So, you know, you're scared. You're mm. scared to call the ombudsman or the medical ombudsman mm. because it will get reported back. And like Jenny was saying, like these people control your lives, like, you know, at stores just to get things that people have sent into you. You have to be nice to these people that work there just so you can get your property, your property that people have sent into you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hope that that's, um, that colour is, is coming through to, to the listeners because it's a completely different experience of the world um, that, that, that Sarah and, and Jenny are talking about. Um, so I think you, you, you highlight there just the pervasive kind of impacts of, uh, of I mean, you could say patriarchy of, um, of power imbalances, culture, a lack of oversight in, uh, uh, in these settings. You know, that's its own thing. But um, Sarah and Jenny, you kind of signaled that actually this follows you out a little bit. So when people are released from prison, that process is also um, not necessarily simple. I don't know, uh, Sarah, Jenny, did you have thoughts on that? And then I might jump to jump to Monique about, well, what's it like um, when you get out of prison? Um, what's that process like? The process just to get out of prison is a nightmare. It's, <laughs> um, there is no, yeah, it's just ticking terrible. boxes. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It literally is ticking boxes. There is no consistency whatsoever. Um, the person before you that got out would have had it done a certain way and then for you it's a completely opposite way and so you just don't know where you stand. And if you've got parole, you hold on to that and you hold on to it and then your life and your release is literally depending on your parole officer and how efficient they are and the report that they put in. And if they're late putting that report in, they can get an extension, which then pushes your date further out. You ask officers what, what's happening. Oh, I don't know why you expect you're going to get your earliest. You're not going to get your earliest release date. And it's like, well, I know that I'm, that I, I'm not expecting that, but I would like to know what's actually going on with that. You know, you just want to know questions. You want to, you want answers for your questions, and you get shut down. Um, it's and the the steps you have to go through, and as Sarah said, the boxes you have to tick just to get an interview for you to get released on parole is an absolute nightmare. You have no idea what's going on, and if you've done a long time, you look forward to this date. And then you finally make it there and you have no idea what's going on. So it is the uncertainty of it all. It is, it is a nightmare. It is such a nightmare and you feel that you have no support and you can't turn anywhere or to anyone because, as I said, the person that, that was granted parole before you has had a completely different experience to what you're having. It's just it's an absolute nightmare and I, I just want to really flag again that it is so, so wrong that it comes down to how efficient your parole officer is. That's mm. what it comes down to. And it's not right. It is not right because we are all different. Some people could have done years and years and years and, and put in all this work. And then someone else that could have done the same amount of time has put in no effort whatsoever, but they're getting treated exactly the same. Mm. 
when their needs are so different from each other's. Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating. It is such a frustrating system and it's broken and it does not work. It does not work. Yeah. Sarah? I heard um, an interesting statistic the other day that there's 40,000 people in prison across Australia at the moment and one in two go back inside due to lack of accommodation and support. Like that's half. That's half. Um, but, you know, I with the lack of accommodation and support, I can speak from the women's system, there's not enough done for women to, um, to reintegrate back into the community, whereas in the men's system they have the Judy Lazarus Transitional Centre for men. And I think that's capped at about 25, 25 men and they're able to go there in the last 12 to six months of their sentence. Um, and they're able to do, it's in the city, and they're able to do, you know, everyday basic things like go do their grocery shopping, go home on the weekends, go to work, go to education, do things that will get them ready for when they are released. And there's nothing at all like that for women. They have the minimum security prison, Tarangawa. So Tarangawa is, um, is meant to be like a transitional a transitional space for women to go back out into the community, but it is out in the sticks um, and there is just not at all the same opportunities that the men have at JLTC. Mm-hmm. So there's a real inequality there. Um, between- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, like with the whole... Um, parole and the box ticking you have to keep on reliving your trauma and your crime over and over again like you may have done you know all this work inside of prison um, work on you know your mental health drug use all of that but when you get out on parole it's like you have to start all over again and the people who are asking you the questions you know, you, I don't think that they're equipped to deal with um, the trauma that you're reliving. It's like you have your half an hour appointment. They're like, okay, see you later. Yeah, yeah. So they're dredging up all of this stuff and it sounds really. Yeah. It's heavy. It's a lot. Yeah. And, and I think you signaled this earlier, but linked into to why people going to prison is experiences of family violence is experiences of um homelessness um horrible experiences and in a way and and please correct me um sarah and jenny but in a way i when you when i hear that it sounds like those things almost become weaponized um um or, or certain maybe not intentionally but maybe the experience is weaponized um I don't know, to, to assess you through this really kind of deficits-based approach. I don't know if that resonates with you or if you'd have a different um, view on that. Well, well, yeah, it does because 
we work really hard towards putting our past and our fending behind us. Like for those of us in there that have chosen to work on ourselves and do the hard work and, and do the therapy, we learn that our crime doesn't define who we are. It was something that we did in our past. But in the system, it's almost as if that is who you are. That's all you're ever going to be seen as is that that crime you committed when really mm-hmm. in reality it's not because there was a mistake that we made in our past and we now know that the reason why we committed that crime and it's so layered mm-hmm. um but then when you you're in the system you, it's brought up okay so you're in here for this 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 and this well yes i am but i've worked really hard to figure out why I was doing that. And then you finally build that rapport with them in there and they get to know you for who you are, some of the POs. Um, And then the parole process starts, as Sarah said, and then it's like reliving it all over again. And it's just, it's not right because you are made to feel that that's how you are. The Mm. interviews you have to go through to get parole is ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. It is traumatizing. Mm. And it's it, you are made to feel that that's who you are and that's all you're ever going to be. Now, how is that going to pick someone up and help them get confidence to gain employment, which is then going to set them on this beautiful pathway to I am worth something. I can do this. I can live a normal life. But no, they're put down and you can't do this. You can't do that. It's just it's ridiculous. Yeah. And I think, too, like the labels that are put on you in the system as well. I mean, you have GOs, which are general offenders, and then you have SVOs, which are serious violent offenders. I am actually labelled as an SVO. Um, I think that, yeah, these labels are just put out there too freely and the hoops that I personally had to go through to get um my parole being an svo is a whole other level like it is crazy Mm. i'm being put in the same category as you know really violent men Mm. Mm. um it's not taken on as a case by case Mm. um sort of it's not looked at like that it's just all one size fits all you're an svo well this is what you've got to do yeah and and if and I don't know much about this space, but what I would observe is that that's kind of a feature of lots of systems that they categorize to control um, the environment that that system operates in. Um, categories become very useful to the system, not necessarily to the people going through those systems. Um, I work in mental health. I've got my own lived experience of mental health issues and. Um, certain psychiatric labels are really used, you know, can be used to say, well, that's a person, a borderline personality disorder person, that's a person with schizophrenia, that's, you know, and the actual person gets, you know, thrown to the background. They're not, they're not really in the room. It's the label that's in the room. And um, I, I hear that a lot when you, again, I don't know much about SVOs and things like that, but that's, I hear some similarities or parallels when, when you talk through that. Hmm. Yeah. So what we've done in the conversation is we've spoken a bit about um, what the foundational questions around entry into these systems, then well, what's it like in them? 
and now what's it like on the on the way out we're, we're doing the podcast at a at a fortunate time so there's a corrections review underway um so that's by the the victorian state government it's going to make recommendations to the government so i'll start with you monique what are your asks to the government So the cultural review of the adult custodial correction system, which is the full official name of the review, uh, presents a long overdue opportunity for the Victorian government to finally turn the page on abuse behind bars. Instead of building more prisons where, um, you know, we've discussed cruelty is rampant and, you know, deaths in custody are too common. Uh, the Andrews government should be reducing the number of people being forced into prisons um, by fixing discriminatory laws like the bail laws and also what Jenny was just talking about before in terms of um, parole laws. Also, there's also really um, urgent need for parole reform. Um, So the Human Rights Law Centre did a joint submission to the review along with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Flat Out, Fitzroy Legal Service and the St Kilda Legal Service which also, in terms of looking at regulation within prisons, called on the Victorian government to do a number of things, including banning cruel practices like solitary confinement and routine strip searches, providing healthcare in prisons, which is something we've canvassed a lot in the podcast today, to make sure that it's the same standard um, that's available in the community and to ensure that there's also continuity and care between um, the services that people can access in prison and then what they might access on release in the community. Uh, Making phone calls to and from prison free to help people in prison um, stay connected with family reform prison disciplinary proceedings to make them fairer and less opaque, Um, resourcing legal services dedicated to meet the legal needs of people in prison, and um, importantly, and I think that this is something that's come up a few times today, um, implement greater transparency, accountability and oversight of prisons um, by meeting the um, requirements of the United Nations Anti-Torture Treaty, the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. That's something that the Victorian government was due to, um, to meet. Um, there was a deadline in January earlier this year um, in terms of the Victorian government was responsible for establishing independent oversight of all places of detention, including prisons, um, and they failed to do that. And so each day that that doesn't happen, um, it means that there's increased risk of abuse happening in prisons that we may not even ever be aware of. Yeah, thanks, Monique. And um, yeah, Victoria is, um, you know, as the weeks and months go by, um, we're falling further and further behind um, the rest of the country on Um, on OPCAP, um, the treaty you mentioned there. And our two lived experience experts, so Sarah or Jenny, did you have thoughts on that? What do you want the the corrections review to to recommend or what do you want the government to do? Okay. Um, I I really want them to make it a safer environment. I I want prevention before it gets to incarceration. That's what I want. I want their, I want people to be seen for what they are. And as I mentioned before, we need, at, at some stage, we need to stop and say, what is going on for these people? Why are they offending? 
especially for our re-offenders that are constantly in and out of prison, it breaks my heart. It actually breaks my heart. And I get extremely emotional about it because over the time I was in there, I have seen so many young people come in and out and they are neglected and they don't know where to turn and they want help and there's no help for them. They're just chucked into this system and tainted and painted with the same brush as everyone else. And at some point, when do we ask the question, what is the right steps to take to help these people? Um, I, I want prevention before incarceration. That's what I want. That is something that I'm asking for. And so many people are screaming for it because it's just, we're, it, it, prison is not the answer. Mm. It actually puts people steps back because it then stops us from being able to gain employment from it, we get seen as a certain picture that we're actually not. So I, I want the government to start putting steps in place to prevent incarceration. Thanks, Jenny. Sarah? Yeah, I agree with everything Jenny just said. She put it beautifully. <laughs> yeah, I um, um, I think I'm, I'm going to have to get a new layer of skin. I'm getting so many goosebumps when you're on. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh so one of the the, the question um as you know uh that we end this podcast with um is uh, what's one thing that you want the listeners to go away and do today um after listening um to you so whoever wants to kick off with that um jump in um yeah i'd like if the listeners could um there's a campaign going at the moment called Homes Not Prisons. Um, it's run by Flat Out. Um, there's an open letter online at the moment. If people could please sign it. It's, you know, the Andrews government announced that they were going to build, um, they were going to make DPFC bigger with more beds. And what we're saying is, um, you know, to put that money into affordable housing for women so mm. they do have safe places to go to so yeah so that's um, homes not prisons and also if you would like um, any posters for your organization or yourself you can email admin at floodout.org.au thanks so much sarah um, i'll make sure that um, we put that in the show notes and then we put it in, um, on social media as well. Thanks. Might even share that poster online. Um, Jenny? Um, my asks are to get behind organisations that are involved in domestic violence, um, support young people. Um, also another big ask I have is don't stereotype people that have been to prison because that it happens all the time in the community. We are not the same. We could be your neighbour. We are someone's daughter. We're someone's mum. You know, we we aren't that horrible person that's been to prison that's going to <laughs> rob or murder you. You know, we're not we're not that. But get behind these organisations if you've got time. Volunteer at the at soup kitchens, things like that. Just give back to the community and let's help each other. Let's. Let's just be there for each other and just get behind everyone. Um, there's a there's an amazing organisation, CASA, that get involved in trauma counselling and things like that for women. They are amazing. They're in the prison system. 
and just get behind them. That's my ask. Yeah. Thanks, Jenny. Um, um, we're we're going to have some great show notes um, uh, for, for this episode. Monique. Fully endorse everything that Sarah um, and Jenny have just said. And I think that listening to people with lived experience of the prison system is um, integral. And it's been a real privilege to be on the podcast today with Sarah and Jenny. And I think if listeners are interested in learning more um, and unpacking assumptions that they might have about prisons and the way in which the criminal legal system actually operates, there's a lot of um, reading that people can do. Um, and just off the top of my head, the works of Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Mariam Kaber, and um, Deb Kilroy of Sisters Inside up in Queensland um, come to mind. Well, thank you all so much. I, I'm going to echo um, Monique's um, sentiments there and also that it's been a privilege um, being uh, on this and, and hearing from Monique as well. Um, thank you so much. Um, and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it too. Yeah, thank you for having us on the show and giving, letting our voice be heard. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful opportunity to be able to, as Sarah said, to have our voices heard um, and let's make change. It's time for change. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>